Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. I'm Deborah Becker, in for Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Every year in the U.S., there are an estimated 240 million calls to 911. About 20 percent of them involve someone experiencing a mental health crisis. When police respond, the outcome can be tragic. Advocates say police are trained to react to potential dangers quickly and aggressively, and they're not equipped to handle many mental health crises that are often not a threat to public safety. Research from the Treatment Advocacy Center says those with mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed in police encounters than other people approached by law enforcement. In May of 2020, a 911 caller in Minneapolis asked for help with a man who had passed a counterfeit $20 bill in a store. According to the 911 transcripts, the caller said the man, George Floyd, was sitting in a car where he appeared to be drunk and, quote, not in control of himself. Police responded forcefully when Floyd resisted getting into the cruiser and they kept a knee on his neck for almost nine minutes. I can't believe it. I can't believe this, man. Mama, I love you. Reese, I love you. You got hobble. My kids, I love them. Minneapolis firefighter Geneve Hansen called 911 that day as well, but to report the officers. This was part of her call that was played during the trial of one of the officers convicted of killing Floyd. Hello. I am on the block of 38 in Chicago, and I literally watched police officers not take a pulse and not do anything to save a man. And I am a first responder myself. And I literally have it on video camera. In response to Floyd's killing, countless police departments across the country have taken steps to change how they respond to incidents like this. Some have increased mental health training for officers. Others have hired social workers. In some communities, clinicians are patrolling the streets with officers, which is known as co-response. The needle has has moved on this, that it's an expectation now for what a police department will do and not just something extra or window dressing. It it is a real part of police operations. Melissa Morabito is a professor in the School of Criminology at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and an advisor to the Boston Police Department. She says police are handling an increasing number of calls involving complex mental health issues, and they understand they need to improve and that clinicians can help. Some communities have removed law enforcement from emergency calls entirely. They've created agencies to handle emergency call centers where behavioral health workers and not officers deal with mental health-related calls and those situations that are deemed not threatening. Also, a national 988 suicide and crisis hotline was established last year as another place for those in mental health crisis to seek help. We're going to spend this hour talking about changing the way we respond to emergencies, how it's going, how we got here, and some of the questions raised when merging public safety and public health. 
One question is, who determines if a 911 call might become dangerous and require police? This question is raised in a lawsuit over a 2021 fatal police shooting in Newton, Massachusetts. Officers, along with the police department mental health clinician, answered a call about a man with a knife who was behaving erratically. That man, 28-year-old Michael Conlon, had a history of mental health issues and was receiving treatment. When officers responded, Michael ran into his apartment building. Officers followed and began talking with him in a third-floor hallway, urging him to drop the knife. State police responded as well. And while these officers were waiting for professional law enforcement negotiators, Conlin did drop the knife nearby and asked to talk with his father. The officers then tried to use a beanbag gun to prevent Michael from retrieving the knife. But that beanbag gun misfired, and Michael picked up the knife again. That's when officers shot him seven times. His father, Robert Conlon, is asking why the mental health clinician who was with police had to wait outside in a cruiser and was not asked to help. The social worker knew Michael's address that had been there or had, uh, knew about it a year earlier, was out, outside in the car. The police felt like it was too dangerous for her to go in. If there was a mental illness call, and, and, and the police knew, police knew he was obviously having something going on severe, why wouldn't you have a mental health representative there? An inquest into Conlin's shooting determined that police were not criminally responsible because Conlin didn't drop the knife. Shootings like his are not all that uncommon. Nationally, statistics show one in five fatal police shootings involve someone with a mental health issue. Now, these types of situations are difficult for sure, and they move quickly. Many officers say it's their job to protect public safety, and they should be the ones in charge of responding, even if they're working with a clinician. Larry Napolitano is a police sergeant in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. He's just completed a new program where officers and clinicians are trained to respond to emergencies together. Napolitano says police are needed on calls to protect public safety, but he does say working with a social worker can help. And when we're dealing with mental health calls, there are some situations, unfortunately, where people are totally out of control, and you have to contain a situation to make sure that no one gets hurt. And that's ultimately what you want. You want no one to get hurt. So I think the combination of the two provides the perfect dichotomy to be able to handle an ever-changing situation. And then there's Cassie McGrath, who's a mental health clinician who works with police in Framingham, Massachusetts. She was also part of that training program with Sergeant Napolitano. We spoke with her while she was out on patrol with some officers, and she says she can help officers diffuse tense situations and help people get treatment or services. In most cases, McGrath says she wouldn't feel safe responding without an officer. You know, as a clinician, I'm putting myself in situations where my safety is in the hands of the officers that I'm riding along with. I'm relying on them to make sure that I'm safe to, you know, read cues on scenes that I wouldn't necessarily pick up on that's their part, like part of their training. And they, on the same side of that, are expecting me to know where I need to be on scene and understanding my role in that way. 
Yet some mental health providers say police should not be involved at all in most behavioral health calls. Rebecca Gewertz is head of the Massachusetts chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. She cites data from civilian-only alternative response teams showing that those alternatives can sometimes lower costs and reduce the number of tragic outcomes. Too much of our attention is focused on this co-response model. I think we should be thinking about how we can promote, support, and fund alternative response where people who are in a mental health crisis get a mental health response. Among the communities that have created an alternative mental health response team is Amherst, Massachusetts. Its program is called Community Responders for Equity, Safety, and Service, or CRESS. It started last year with trained civilians taking emergency calls that were made to a separate phone line. It'll begin taking diverted 911 calls this fall. Earl Miller runs CRESS and says all communities should have alternative first responders, and he says co-response has some limitations. A clinician who comes out of a car with a cop is always second. They're always not, they're not going to be the lead decision maker um, and co-response. You know, I think while it appears really good on paper, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that it doesn't look that different than traditional policing. So far, Miller says about 75 percent of the calls to his group have been mental health related. And he believes that the creation of alternative response represents a shift in policing. Practically, we represent a kind of different level of deployment that's able to keep low-level calls from becoming higher-level calls down the road. And then I think, you know, politically, we are a uh, an example of a promise made and a promise kept. And ultimately that, you know, in 2023, there is action that happened after the death of George Floyd. The Justice Department recently released a scathing investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department that began after George Floyd was killed, and it said the city has sent police to mental health calls when they weren't needed and where their response was, quote, often harmful. Today we're talking about rethinking policing and mental health, and we're going to start by talking with Brian Pete. He's director of the Riley County Police Department in Manhattan, Kansas. Brian's also a board member of Crisis Intervention Team International, and that's a program for law enforcement, mental health professionals, and civilians with lived experience who work with communities on responding to people with mental health challenges. Brian, welcome to On Point. Thank you so very much. I appreciate being here. So you're a police officer well-versed on emergency response training, but the statistics really about the number of calls uh, involving folks in a mental health crisis are are kind of limited at best. Um, And so I wonder, in your experience, what are you seeing in terms of the number of calls your department in Kansas receives that involve mental health and which ones are, are, are mental health crisis? Well, I, I think um, I think that I think that there's a, a very high percentage of, uh, of of calls to law enforcement across the country that involve a mental health uh, aspect to it. Uh, to me, the um, uh, you know we're, we're we're getting slow. I think collectively as a country and gathering and collecting this data and using this data, but there's a model that's already out there that talks about this and, and that works towards this. So, so yes, this is a significant problem, and it requires it requires uh, movement on all sides uh, for this. Mm-hmm. So, what would you say though, in terms of percentage for you? Is it five percent, ten percent? What is it? I'd say for us, it's probably closer to thirty percent. Hmm. 
30%. And you've worked in other departments, Chicago, Vermont. Do you also think that most police departments are taking steps to try to improve their response to folks in mental health crisis? Yes, without a doubt. I also think that one of the things that law enforcement is also advocating for is for more resources to be put into non-law enforcement responses to this. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I'm going to ask you to hold on for just a moment because we're going to take a break. We're discussing mental health and policing with Brian Peet. He's the director of the Riley County Police Department in Manhattan, Kansas. When we come back, we'll learn about an alternative response program in Denver, Colorado that's changing how the community is handling some 911 calls. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Deborah Becker, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com onpoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker, and today we're talking about the intersection of policing and mental health and whether there's a better way for communities to handle 911 calls so they can try to avoid harm and, in some cases, tragedy. We're joined by Brian Peet. He directs the Riley County Police Department in Kansas. He's also on the board of Crisis Intervention Team International. And I'm wondering, Brian, can you explain for us exactly what what can a clinician do on the ground specifically uh, to handle a situation and perhaps diffuse a tense situation to improve outcomes? Well, I, there's a there, there's a lot to that. And, and, and ultimately, I say it depends. It depends on the individual. It depends on the training of the clinician. It depends mm-hmm. on the capabilities of the cl- clinician and a lot of external factors that are quite often beyond the control of a lot of folks that are responding to the incident. Um, keeping in mind that if someone calls 911 for a mental health emergency, most of the time it may not be a situation in which you know a support group w- was able to uh, de-escalate the situation. And now it's grown to an issue of that law enforcement may have had to been called in the first place. But also there, there's a certain element of, of education that has to come from the public uh, about other resources to call other than 911. But uh, looking at the original question, it's just, uh, it, it, I think it just, it depends on the situation entirely. Mm-hmm. But what would you say is the big thing that works for officers when they have a co-response model like you do in Kansas? It would be, it, it's it's many people that are there that can reach the individual who's in crisis. There may be sometimes that uh, the folks uh, who are in crisis may have a strong relationship with a co-responder. They may have a strong relationship with an officer. Uh, so I think 
uh, from my perspective, the, 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 the better amount of folks that can be there to help this person and that can gain trust uh, is is uh, is the best possible outcome. You know, uh, in our introduction uh, to this program, we heard from a man whose son was fatally shot by police in Massachusetts. And the clinician who was working with the police department was waiting outside in the car because it was deemed unsafe for that clinician to help the officers uh, because there was a weapon involved. But some of these situations, I mean, aren't these the situations where you really need a mental health clinician? And how do you draw the line there in terms of knowing when uh, a clinician should be called in and when a clinician should be told to wait in the cruiser? Well, I couldn't, I, I don't know the specifics of that situation. I think it's a travesty uh, all the way around. Uh, but I, I am aware of other situations in other departments where law enforcement uh, have gone to scenes where weapons were involved and the clinicians were out of the vehicle, were interacting with the person in crisis. So uh, it, it's something that um, it, it, it differs everywhere you go. And this is why I think um, that organizations need training and they need partnerships uh, and communications with the folks that they're working with, with co-responders, with stakeholders to, to, to identify how they're going to make these responses. Now, crisis intervention team training is, has been around really since the 80s. Um, how, how do you know it works? I know it works because it saves lives every day. Um, and, and, and it started, it's it's the same unfortunate, it's the same script, different cast. And in 1988, there was a, a mother who had called law enforcement and and, uh, and unfortunately her son was killed uh, in, in a mental health response. And uh, that's where CIT was formed, that law enforcement realized that, law, that, that it needs to train officers in mental health, uh, in what a crisis looks like and how to deescalate it because Responding to a, a criminal act is entirely different than responding to someone who's in mental health crisis. And it's important that law enforcement recognizes the difference between the two and acts accordingly, but also that we have resources within our communities that law enforcement is not the only option and that in, as un, because we've defunded social services across the country, 911 is the catch-all. And uh, every law enforcement agency that I'm aware of wishes that there were other resources and other places. And, and, and again, like coming up to 988, which was implemented last year. And we're hoping that, um, that that's a, a source that when people see someone in mental health crisis, that they think of 988 before they think of 911. Mm -hmm. 988 being the, the national uh, suicide and crisis hotline that folks are supposed to call. But I'm wondering, can you give me a specific example of, of, how training changes the way an officer handles a mental health call. What what do you do differently, or what does that training tell you to do differently? Give me. Is there a specific example you could give me? So sure, I can give you a very basic example. So in law enforcement across the country, one of the things that law that, that that's taught in the academy is you want to make sure that the hands of that you can see the hands of the individuals that you're dealing with, because that's where the threat could possibly come from if there's a threat to you or to anyone else in a, during that interaction. So if I came to a call for service and there was an individual smoking a cigarette, I would ask that person to please put the cigarette out because I want to have this interaction with you. I don't want you to use that cigarette against me or anyone else. Um, 
But often, a lot of cases, there are folks with mental health issues that nicotine is a calming factor. So if I'm aware that it's a uh, it's a situation, it's a mental health related call, and that person is smoking a cigarette, why would I pull them away from something that's giving them comfort and stability uh, in a highly stressful situation? And so that's just one of the many small examples is meeting people, recognizing what the issue is and meeting people where they are and not escalating it to the point that you have to use force. And yet we hear increasing reports of the use of force and obviously some high profile, horrific situations. And So where's the disconnect? Well, I, I think um, it depends on, again, on, entirely on the situation. It's mm-hmm. uh, I, I would encourage folks that uh, CIT is more than training. CIT is a program. CIT is, is relationships, strong relationships. There are lives that hang in the balance of of all all stakeholders of law enforcement, mental health service providers, people with lived experiences, their support groups, their families. We have to come together and we have to know and trust one another. So when these crisis situations happen, we know how to respond. But most importantly, when you come together and you have a strong CIT program, you can see signs that a person's crisis may be escalating. That these these things they're they're, they're not automatic onset. Sometimes, majority of the time, they're gradual things. And that if you have a partnership, and you know that someone in your community is starting to 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 elevate towards that level of crisis, everyone can get together and intervene before it becomes an issue where law enforcement has to be called. Mm. You know, I've heard a criticism of uh, CIT or or crisis intervention team training, and that is that everybody implements it differently. Uh, So there's not really a standard way of, of really utilizing this training in some departments. And in some cases, it might just be perfunctory. Right. They may just be saying, yep, did the training 40 hours. OK, I'm done. I'm trained. And is and that's just not enough, especially in terms of what police departments are dealing with, as you mentioned, uh, because of the lack of social services in this country and increasing complex mental health needs. So what do you do about that, about making more uniform approaches, standards to ensure that that training is is actually uh, something worthwhile? That is a very good question. And uh, so when we look at CIT International, so there are a lot of folks, uh, CIT is a lot like uh, like Kleenex. Uh, you know, say, hey, can we a box of that Kleenex? Well, Kleenex or Xerox, uh, these are the names that have, you know, that's what you think of when you say it. So when so some folks may go out there and say, hey, this is CIT, but it's not CIT International. And CIT International advocates for a program, a collective program, and a set of standards. We have accreditation program, much like Kalia for law enforcement. And and in those things, it talks about you have a 40-hour training, but in the 40-hour training, you build partnerships. You you don't take officers as a checkbox and just say, okay, every officer is going to be trained in CIT, and and there you go, Um, because you have to have the right person with the right frame of mind, with the right level of patience uh, to deal with mental health costs for service. So uh, we have a standard. That standard has been in existence since the late 80s. And it's something that we wish people would fully subscribe to rather than just saying, taking bits and pieces of it and then saying that they have a CIT program, which is in, in those cases, we have negative outcomes like this. You know, in doing reporting on policing and mental health, um, I've, I've watched some police trainings, um, certainly in, in volatile and mental health situations. And 
there it has to be, right, a focus on when to use force. And sometimes you do have to use force. Uh, sometimes you are going to, as an officer, you are going to use a firearm. And those decisions are made in a matter of seconds. That's a very different goal than and, and level of training than what a mental health clinician obviously does. So I'm wondering how you take those two very different goals and put them together in a crisis situation and make sure they work together effectively. I know that's a big question, and, and uh, but, but I really want to hear your thoughts on accommodating both of those things in a co-response model to make sure that you're uh, responding effectively to the community. I think the goal of anyone who responds is is not to use force and you and, and having force as a last uh, is, is a last option. Um, but in uh, in that that might be the difference that you have. Individuals who are law enforcement uh, may think that that's what the outcome is supposed to be. I need to get take control of the situation before I move on to the next call for service. And then you may have a mental health clinician that may say, well, uh, this is what the response is. I need to sit down. I need to have time to speak with this person to help de-escalate. And law enforcement may be concentrating on a time to get to the next call. That's why having that relationship before this call comes out is extraordinarily important. And, and one of the other things that was, you know, I, I do have uh, education and training within mental health counseling. And, and one of the things that's that's kind of shocking to me is there's no there's no certified national level of training that I'm aware of uh, for mental health responders that talks about safety within these situations, as well as de-escalation outright. Uh, going through college, getting my master's degrees and everything, we talk about theory, we talk about counseling practices, but but I think collectively there are a lot of gaps within this system of response that require a very in-depth um, research and partnership uh, if we're going to get it right. And this requires um, investments and advocacy from our elected officials. What's the biggest gap that you think, really, Brian, you know, to make this more effective? What's the biggest gap? Uh, law, uh, I'm sorry, uh, mental health service providers, mm -hmm. that they're not being paid uh, what they should be paid, that they don't have the resources they need. In a lot of cases, uh, when you when we de-escalate someone to the point that they need services, follow-up in a lot of communities could be as much as two to three months out. So there aren't enough, uh, there aren't enough uh, folks who are doing the work. There aren't enough resources for folks. There aren't things like sobering centers or respite centers. There, we, what, what we've done as a society years ago when we got rid of state institutions and hospitals, everything's out on the street and every community has to fend for themselves. And now law enforcement is the default for when someone is in crisis. But we also have to look at when we invest in mental health service, then family members support groups, uh, a person's support network, they also need to understand or need information on what could happen in, in, in crisis. How do you how do you escalate your loved one, de-escalate your loved one? How may some of the things you're doing and saying escalate them to the point that they may be in crisis? Uh, so there's a lot of education that goes uh, all around. And uh, But I think in answering your question, we have to invest in, in a non-law enforcement response. So all these alternative response teams, you would say, are, are very helpful in some communities to divert some of the lower-level calls and, and get people into services. 
Absolutely. But there's a danger in, in an us versus them. In a lot of communities, unfortunately, within George Floyd, we've seen an uptick in organizations who do not want to engage in, in everyone else and all the other stakeholders that are involved. Law enforcement needs to be at the table just as much as NAMI advocacy groups or groups who are doing the work. Um, because again, it is important you have that relationship and trust before the crisis happens uh, rather than after it happens. Okay, I want to bring another voice into this conversation. Seems like segue time here. Uh, Stephanie Van Jacobs is a program manager at uh, WellPower. That's Denver, Colorado's Community Mental Health Center. And it provides clinicians for what's known as the STAR program, Support Team Assisted Response. Stephanie is a licensed clinical social worker and addiction counselor. Stephanie, welcome to On Point. Hello, thank you for having me. So I'm wondering, based on, on what you've heard us talking about uh, with with Brian here, uh, what do you think, uh, uh, you know, regarding uh, alternative response and how it can work with police officers, similar to what you're doing in Denver right now? Yeah, so... In order to start talking about the alternative response, I do have to acknowledge our co-responder program that launched in 2016, which is the mental health clinician that pairs with Denver police um, and responding to provide the support in real time. That program has been tremendously successful and over the years conversation started of how do we develop an alternative response. Um, and Denver launched its STAR pilot program in 2020. And the concept of the STAR program is that it's an alternative response. So it is a well-power mental health clinician and a Denver health paramedic or EMT that are responding in the community 100% of the time to these low-level, low-risk calls that officers don't need to be at. And so we are really working in parallel with traditional response and co-response. Um, having the right response as opposed to the them or star. Mm-hmm. So so basically what you're doing is these calls are diverted from the outset to star and you will handle these sort of lower level calls. Um, and so the operator really is in charge of, of deciding, does this go to a police officer or does this go to someone from star? Yeah, absolutely. So we do a lot of work with 911 dispatch um, and asking those questions when individual or community members call in uh, to see if STAR is the appropriate response. Mm-hmm. And do you know at this point, you started in 2020, so you're relatively mm-hmm. new. How many calls would you say you're taking on average? How many things are you responding to? Yeah, so since our start in 2020, we are roughly around 12,000 calls that we have responded to, and that number continues to increase um, with our expansions. And what does that represent in terms of total 911 calls? Do you know? Uh, So any call that STAR is responding to, that is tracked. So when an individual or community member calls in and STAR responds out, uh, to meet that person where they're at, that is what I'm referring to. Yeah, I'm just wondering, what does that represent in terms of total police department calls? Are you 1% of the calls to the police, or do you know? I don't have that specific number. Okay, okay. Well, Stephanie Van Jacobs, I want you to hold on for a minute. We have to take a, a quick break. We're discussing policing and mental health and how some communities are reinventing their response to people having a mental health crisis. We'll have more when we come back. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. 
Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. Today, we're examining how some communities are reframing how and when police are called in response to 911 calls. Stephanie Van Jacobs is with us from Denver, Colorado. She's program manager at WellPower, which is Denver's community mental health center. And WellPower provides clinicians for the city's alternative response team, or STAR program. It sends mental health workers or paramedics instead of police in some cases. Also still on the line with us is Brian Pete, who's director of the Riley County Police Department in Manhattan, Kansas. So, Stephanie, I want to start with you. What, what do you think or how would you describe the main difference in STAR's response to an emergency call versus a police response? So the main difference is that STAR is non-emergent uh, and STAR is responding within the community to these low risk, low level calls. And so they're able to meet individuals where they're at. They can spend time really building that rapport um, and coming up with solutions or connections to resources with individuals in the community. Mm-hmm. And would you say that many of these calls right now, many police departments around the country are, are likely having officers handle this, which is often a lot of time for an officer, and, and mm-hmm. that's how situations can drastically change and people are not getting the services they need. I mean, how would you describe it? Yeah, absolutely. I think officers are very busy and need to focus on those high-risk calls. Mm -hmm. And so having an alternative response allows us to reach community members and take that time to to really provide those connections. And historically, officers don't always have time to do that. They need to move on to the next one to make sure they're, you know, completing their day. Mm. Brian, Pete, I'm wondering in, in Riley County and your police department in Kansas, I mean, do you have an alternative response? Do you agree with this type of way of dealing with some of these lower level calls? Absolutely. We, yeah, we, we do have an alternative response. We do have a licensed clinic, uh, clinical social worker on staff with us. So uh, so we are able to go to those different calls for service. So, yeah, I agree with it 100 percent. So so you think that communities really need to have this whole comprehensive police alternative response and co-response to be able to handle uh, what we're seeing in, in mental health and also to be able to handle what's happening because of really fewer mental health services. Brian? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to getting in a little bit of trouble here. Yeah, I, this is one, this is a Band-Aid. What, what we're all doing is a Band-Aid. And, and in light of George Floyd, I think we missed, I think our leaders missed an opportunity to invest in systems that we don't have to talk about a crisis response the way we're doing right now. So I, I think that that investment, yes, we are here. We, we we need to have training. We need to have alternative responses. But more importantly, I think we need to have services for people because after we get done de-escalating the situation, there's no place for people to go to get treatment. Right. And that's that investment. Right. All right. Brian Pete, director of the Riley County Police Department in Manhattan, Kansas. Thanks so much for joining us on Point today. 
Thank you. Stephanie Van Jacobs, I'm wondering, uh, what do you think about what Brian says? I mean, is this a Band-Aid? And is really uh, the main issue here a lack of services across the country? And and this is a much bigger problem uh, than how we respond to 911. I I think that this is acknowledging uh, what is happening in our society, and this is getting us to reach more individuals in the community to provide that real-time support, and I think that's a really wonderful start. Um, And as far as resources, I think as populations grow, there is always going to be a need for more resources and accessibility to individuals and community members. Here in Denver, we're lucky to have... um, numerous different resources, and uh, we will continue to need more to be able to support those individuals in long-term connections. You know, as you explained earlier in the program, you said you're going to non-emergent, sort of lower-level calls. That's Mm -hmm. what your clinicians do with this program. But I wonder um, if you are only doing that. Yes, you are certainly helping um, some what may be overburdened police departments, but does it really address some of the problems resulting from aggressive policing? Uh, How do you make a dent in that? I think there's just a lot of collaboration that takes place here within our programs of how do we send the right response, not a one-size-fits-all response. And so we'll continue those conversations and continue continue to better these programs to address issues such as that. So uh, w- what would you say is the main challenge for your program? Uh, One of the main challenges I think now is just becoming that alternative response. So providing education and getting the word out that there is this alternative response and that we're here to operate parallel to traditional response. Can you explain how a clinician uh, might handle an emergency call differently? Like what, you know, give me a visual on the ground of what de-escalation looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So our mental health clinicians have uh, on our STAR program, since they are non-emergent, they have the time to really build those connections. And so that can look like traditional de-escalation, that can look like traditional therapeutic approaches, and that could also mean providing a water bottle and a snack and just sitting down and listening to the individual and really meeting them where they're at so that we can have those connections moving forward. So we really work to listen to the individuals and then go from there. Mm-hmm. And get them. So, so is the approach then getting services for that person? And that's really the big difference. I think the approach is really meeting them where they're at. And if that result is getting them connected to long-term services, then absolutely. But that could mean numerous different things of what that individual needs in that moment. Now, there's been uh, some data published and studies done uh, about your program. Um, can, can you tell us, it looks at this point, uh, it's been fairly positive. I mean, actually a report in in crime, uh, a report of a reduction in crime levels, which which I, I thought that was really surprising. Is that just because, you know, there were fewer arrests when police aren't responding? Or, or, or A, tell us about the data and, and tell us about that data point in particular and why you think it came out the way it did. 
Yeah, so, yeah, STAR has been incredibly positive and has grown from our co-responder program. Uh, we have a really trusting, functioning relationship with Denver Police, and so we were able to um, acclimate this STAR program to into the city. And so we have responded to over 12,000 calls. Uh, I don't have an exact um, answer of whether that would lower crime rates or not. And what I can say is that when we're reaching more individuals and providing more support, uh, individuals are, you know, receiving those long-term connections. Hmm. But there was a, a study done by Stanford University, right, mm-hmm. that that showed reports of less serious crimes in, in neighborhoods where Star was working were down 34 um, percent, right, yeah. uh, in, uh, compared with other neighborhoods where Star was not available. So mm-hmm. um, I, in terms of lower crime and, and lower costs, uh, I mean, are mm-hmm. these some of the positives that we're seeing? Uh, so far from this program? I mean, what do you tell other communities that might be thinking about a STAR program? How do you present this data? Yeah, absolutely. So STAR is in the community 100% of the time. Um, And in each of our units, we stock the units with inventory that we can provide in real time. Uh, So that could be anything from clothing items to hygienic products to Narcan to fentanyl testing strips. And so that alone is building those relationships. within our communities that can have very positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and positive outcomes meaning that people are not arrested and it's less expensive than using a police officer. Yeah, absolutely. And coming up with alternative solutions. So connections, uh, we've helped uh, veterans get connected back with the VA. We have supported community members in getting driver's license or IDs or setting up um, a primary care appointment. So anything on the spectrum where individuals just need that connection or that guidance of where to go, uh, STAR is able to do that real time in the community, meeting that person where they're at. Do you think it would be helpful if STAR could expand uh, the number of calls that it takes and, and expand and perhaps be available at, at calls that were a little bit higher level? I absolutely think that STAR will continue to expand, and I do look forward to that. I think uh, expanding STAR and having it become um, just this norm, traditional, uh, not traditional, excuse me, alternative response alongside other responses. Um, I look forward to that. And I think STAR really operates parallel to co-response, and there is a lot of collaboration there with Denver Police and our co-responders in STAR, and we're able to have the co-responders on those more high-risk calls and STAR to be on the other side with the low risk. So I think we'll continue that collaboration um, and those expansions moving forward. Mm. You know, I asked this question to Brian Pete earlier in the program, uh, and we were talking about uh, a lawsuit in Newton, Massachusetts, where mm-hmm. the family is suing over a fatal police shooting of a man who was having a mental health crisis. And the family asks why the clinician who was part of the co-response team who responded to their son, uh, why it was that the clinician waited in a police cruiser and did not go to the scene to try to de-escalate, and and why there was a reluctance on the part of officers to allow the clinician to be involved. And and the officers say, you know, the the man in question had a knife, and this could have been a dangerous situation. So I wonder, you know, what is your thinking about potentially dangerous situations and where you draw the line or where star responders may have to draw the line. 
Yeah, so we have a lot of conversations uh, with community partners within the team of safety and when is it appropriate for STAR to respond. Uh, And so when a weapon or imminent risk is involved, we definitely send that more to our co-responders with officers. And STAR is there to provide support for individuals in a way where we can have those conversations and we can have our star clinicians and EMTs and paramedics respond on scene. And we wanna make sure that everyone goes home safely. Uh, That includes the individuals within the community. That means our mental health clinicians and our EMTs and paramedics. So it will be a continued conversation of how do we ensure safety and how do we meet individuals where they're at in the community in a moment of crises. Do you have an anecdote that you often think of that uh, about STAR that really explains what it is to people, a very specific way of handling a call? I would say that it is a mobile alternative response that is able to just meet individuals within the community, listening to their needs to try to move forward. What do you think it represents in terms of changing policing and the response to mental health? Are we, uh, are you an example of how communities across the country really are, are grappling with this and trying to come up with something new? And, and why is that? How, how would you say, if you're looking at a big picture? Yeah, I think big picture, this is just the start of uh, addressing or acknowledging how we respond to individuals within the community. How do we come up with a response that is more fitting for specific individuals or specific calls? And so I look forward to the future. I think Denver, we're really thankful here. It's been a game changer of having uh, mental health clinicians work with traditional response to make sure that we're sending that right response that can become more effective than just sending an all-size or a one-size-fits-all response. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's been a game-changer? Like, what are you seeing on the ground that you think it's become a game-changer? Yeah, I think providing the support for those community members and individuals has been a game-changer, and I think allowing uh, the collaboration with officers and social workers has been a significant uh, game-changer. And I say that in the fact that we are able to address individuals Um, If it's a co-responder with an officer, they're able to collaborate on scene. The social worker is able to provide support in maybe a different manner manner than an officer is and vice versa. And then having an alternative response alongside or parallel to that, we're able to have those mental health clinicians and EMTs and paramedics responding within the community and also having that collaboration. Some police officers I've spoken with are are really reluctant to give up uh, the response. And they say it could be a real compromise uh, to public Mm -hmm. safety. There's a real liability there for departments, for communities, and, and a risk to to the clinicians. And some clinicians agree with that and say, I would not want to respond to calls, even calls that are determined low or deemed low level. I don't want to do that without a police officer. And so, you know, I, I wonder, um, you know, I asked this question to Brian, are there very different goals and trainings involved in officers and mental health clinicians? And how do you balance both of those when, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, high, high stakes emergencies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's absolutely different trainings. Uh, and I think the goal in a larger sense is the same, is that we want 
to come to a solution with individuals. We want to make sure that everyone is safe um, and we want to make sure that we're reaching individuals within the community. So although social workers and police officers do come from two different trainings or two different backgrounds, the collaboration and the goal can absolutely be the same and they can collaborate and work together to uh, have a larger impact on the community as a whole. What would your advice be in the last minute we have here, Stephanie? What would your advice be to other communities that are looking to implement uh, star-like programs? Yeah, I would say a piece of advice is to look to your community, listen to the com- the needs of your community, um, and to have those conversations or collaborations with other community partners. The idea of these alternative responses are to really meet the larger needs of, of our community members and provide that positive or significant support. And so with that, we have to have conversations and building and working relationships with other departments or agencies and community partners. So, so have a lot of dialogue and and and, uh, and start small, would you say, or how? What would you say? Yeah, absolutely. When we the pilot program started in 2020 here in Denver, it was one unit with one well power mental health clinician and one Denver Health EMT and paramedic, and we have steadily increased over the last two years to having eight units, 16 mental health clinicians, and 16 Denver Health paramedics. All right, we have to leave it there. Stephanie Van Jacobs, program manager at Well Power in Denver, Colorado, which works with the city's STAR program and alternative response to 911 calls. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point.